Venerable Chodron has been teaching a lot the last few days. So she's resting her voice. And so tonight she's asked us to review um, Samsara, Nirvana, and Buddha nature. So we'll go back to chapter one and pick up from there. So let's start by setting our motivation. And in the ordination rite, there's a very moving passage that says, we know that all sentient beings are caught by the four maras, which are the afflictions, the five contaminated aggregates, death, and the mara of desire. Sentient beings are bound in the three realms. They're tangled up in relationships with family, friends, and foes. And they indulge, they chase after the five sense pleasures. Or we could say we chased after the five sense pleasures. Accordingly, sentient beings transmigrate in the cycle of birth and death for hundreds of thousands of countless eons. Having given up one body, they take another. There's no escape for them. So when we deeply reflect on this situation, in relation to ourselves, we develop self-compassion. Renunciation is self-compassion. We wish for ourselves to be free of cyclic existence, to definitely emerge from cyclic existence. And when we reflect on this situation in relation to other sentient beings, we develop the heart of great compassion and bodhicitta. So when we contemplate these two situations, we will truly want to renounce the afflictions and turn our mind to the truth. We will diligently keep our precepts, work hard to cultivate concentration and develop wisdom, and engage in the myriad practices of the six perfections and learn innumerable dharma methods. It goes on to say, at this time when the dharma is declining in the world, Each of us must establish ourselves as a banner of the Dharma, attain a Buddha's life of wisdom, and cause the lineage of the three jewels to continue without interruption so that sentient beings will benefit from it. So what supports us in our aspiration to do all this is a very clear understanding of the Four Noble Truths, the Four Truths Known by Aryas. So tonight, let's return to the first part of Volume 3, Samsara, Nirvana, Buddha, Nature, and especially the 16 aspects of the four truths known by Aryas, and review, review them with a mind of great compassion for ourselves, as well as for all our kind mother sentient beings. So as I was rereading chapter one, I found it quite difficult at times to summarize a few sections because what I found is that each paragraph is so well-crafted, have you noticed? And each sentence, each word, each phrase is rich with much information. And so, so much to think about and so much to apply to our own lives that um, I appreciated the excuse to go back and spend some time with it. Uh, So tonight we'll go back to chapter one, uh, the self, the four truths, and their 16 attributes and see, see how far we get. 
Um, so last time we did a review, we looked at uh, the three questions in the, to begin the, the text. Is there a self? Is there a beginning to the self? And is there an end to the self? And so this next section looks at the four truths in general, and then we get into looking at the 16 aspects. So His Holiness reminds us that at the time of the Buddha, many spiritual traditions spoke about the unawakened state of samsara and the awakened state of nirvana. These were already common terms. And each tradition had its own description of dukkha, what was dukkha, what its origin was, um, how to cease that dukkha and the path leading to that cessation. So what was unique about the Buddha? What what did he bring into the mix that um, brought about a consummate understanding of these uh, four truths? It's a good question, isn't it? Perhaps we'll answer that tonight. So the first two truths are talking about our everyday experience, true suffering or unsatisfactoriness, true dukkha, and the true origins of suffering, meaning the um, karma and afflictions. And it's, it's always been curious to me that Buddhism doesn't offer a hard and fast definition of samsara. Have you found that? I, I find that curious, given there's so many definitions that we come across. So. What is your own working definition of samsara? Not an illustration, but like what's a what's a what are the characteristics that come to your mind when you think of samsara? This body and this mind, this body that just keeps getting older and getting sick and going to eventually die, and a mind that's generally usually out of control. I've got to continually have to rein it in. So I, that's what I think about. That's my samsara. Yeah. That's, that's an illustration, a good illustration of samsara, for sure. Anybody else? Um, a sentient being that takes rebirth continually under the influence of karma and affliction. A sentient being that, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in Sanskrit, the word samsara means flowing on or passing through. Interesting. Jet Sumpa, the textbook author of Sarah J. Monastic College, says, Samsara is the continuous movement from one set of aggregates to another. It's not a definition, but it's a good description, isn't it? The continuous movement from one set of aggregates to another. And one of Gallic Rimache's texts, he, he describes it this way. It's the con- continuation of the contaminated being. It's kind of like what you two are saying. So samsara is the endless cycle of birth, aging, sickness, death, birth, aging, sickness, death, without any control. How do you feel about that? (laughs) You know, if someone had control over us, we wouldn't like it, would we? And yet we don't seem to mind too much that we're under the control of samsara, or actually under the control of our karma and afflictions. So... Uh, samsara is illustrated. It, an illustration of samsara is the contaminated appropriated aggregates uh, controlled by karma and mental afflictions. It's also illustrated by the wheel of life, isn't it? When we look at the 12 links. So uh, that's a little bit about samsara. What is your working definition of liberation? We're working for it, aren't we? <laughs> what is it? 
yeah, you no longer be subject to rebirth under the control of karma and afflictions. Yeah, yeah, it's like a freedom, isn't it? It's a freedom of bondage of rebirth from the contaminated uh, or polluted aggregates propelled by karma and affliction. So liberation comes about by ceasing ignorance and karma that cause cyclic existence. So there's this wonderful quote from the Lama and Chima that says, from beginningless time you have been conditioned to believe that the wonders of cyclic existence are sources of happiness and you have habitually projected upon them a false image of beauty. Does that seem like what we're doing all day long or does it seem like Cooney's Thai cuisine is actually as good as it looks. <laughs> it kind of sums it up. We, we project beauty, security, comfort, happiness onto people, places, experiences, um, objects. Uh, but these people are subject to, as we've seen in, I can't remember where that came up, but people are subject to birth, aging, sickness, death, lamentation, sorrow, despair, and yet we're relying on them. We're taking refuge in them oftentimes, aren't we? So that's a setup. That's not going to work out. But this quote goes on to say, But if as a remedy you train yourself to meditate on suffering and unpleasantness, you will put an end to these wrong ideas. So I, I like that phrase because it reminds us that why we're meditating on suffering. Um, otherwise it's just a drag, isn't it? But... We're meditating on suffering because if we meditate on suffering and unpleasantness, we will put an end to these wrong ideas. So that's why we focus so much on dukkha, on suffering. So in the book, His Holiness says, renunciation does not mean relinquishing happiness. Rather, it's the aspiration for liberation, the determination to seek a higher and more enduring happiness than samsara can offer. I think Venerable calls, uh, sam- calls samsaric happiness grade D happiness or grade F happiness. Grade F. <laughs> okay. So, a higher and more enduring happiness than samsara can offer. Can we even imagine that? You know, there's this phrase if you can imagine it, you can become it, you can create it, you can bring it about. So, can we even imagine what it's like, what liberation is like? We should try. (laughs) Yeah. So the Buddha spoke of four truths in many sutras. And in the first turning of the Dharma wheel, he presented the four truths by means of three cycles. Do you remember them? That's the first one. In terms of three cycles, he talked about, first he talked about the nature, the nature of the four truths. Does that ring a bell? And then uh, how to engage each one. And then uh, the, resu- the results of realizing each truth. It's good we're doing a review. <laughs> okay, so um, let's look at the nature of each truth. And these will be very fami- familiar to most of you, uh, maybe new to some of you. Okay, so true dukkha. These are true dukkha are the polluted aggregates that are appropriated by karma and mental afflictions. And uh, you might remember there was a quote by Asanga there, uh, Asanga's Compendium of Knowledge, that says, if one asks what is true dukkha, it is to be understood both in terms of the sentient beings who are born, 
as well as the habitats in which they are born. Remember we talked about internal dukkha, the body and the mind, uh, contaminated body and mind, and the external dukkha, the environment, the things around us and the things that we use and enjoy. So even the things around us, although we say primarily samsara is this contaminated, appropriated set of aggregates, it also includes the things that were brought about through grasping it, self-grasping ignorance. And then in the establishment of Mindfulness Sutra, the Buddha said, what and what monastic is the Arya truth of dukkha? Birth is dukkha, aging is dukkha, death is dukkha, sorrow, lamentation, pain, dejection, and despair are dukkha, Encountering the undesired is dukkha. Being separated from the desired is dukkha. Not getting what one wants is dukkha. In short, the five aggregates subject to clinging are dukkha. There it is in a nutshell. So the description is pretty clear, but when we encounter these different unsatisfying or painful experiences, or even the pleasant ones for that matter, do we make the connection that this is true dukkha? Does that thought appear? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> not yet, not not consistently, huh? Maybe occasionally after a teaching. Um, and does it appear to your mind that there's a cause for the suffering, the dissatisfaction, the suffering of change, etc.? So, uh, do we recognize it to be one of the three types of dukkha: dukkha of pain, dukkha of change, uh, dukkha of conditionality? So, in a nutshell, that's the nature of dukkha. That's the nature of our cyclic existence. Internal dukkha, external dukkha. And then what propels the cycle of uncontrolled and repeatedly, uncontrollably and repeatedly taking psychophysical aggregates in one of the three realms is true origins of dukkha. And the root affliction is self-grasping ignorance. So, this is a mental factor which apprehends phenomena as existing in a way totally opposite to the way that they actually exist. Whereas every phenomena exists dependently, ignorance apprehends them as existing independently, autonomously, inherently from their own side. So I appreciated the description that His Holiness included that uh, ignorance narrows our mind. It narrows our mind, obscuring it from seeing the multifarious factors involved in existence. Can you see that in your own experience? Venerable's been emphasizing this a lot lately, really inviting us, encouraging us to look at all the different causes and conditions that are included in any experience that we might come upon. Um, But we tend to look for one cause to blame, one person, one cause, one external condition to blame. Um, In reality, all countless causes and conditions come into play with every situation. So, for example, many people are blaming President Biden for the fast-growing inflation that America is experiencing right now. Um, Is it just due to Biden's economic policies since being elected president less than two years ago? What do you think? A year ago, only a year. Okay, so in the last year, his economic policies and how he's been able to implement maybe one or two, has that brought about inflation? Tarpa. Well, the whole world is having inflation, so I, I think that doesn't make sense to think that his policies have done it. <laughs> right. You think maybe the worldwide uh, pandemic had something to do with it? 
the pandemic and restrictive quarantines have led to a huge worldwide supply chain disruption. Um, not only that, but um, not to mention climate change, you know, related impacts from, think of all the fires that happened this summer, at least, well, all over the world, and how that may have contributed to some of this disruption. And also now in our area, especially flooding, is now contributing to uh, disruption of supply chains, truck, truck routes, things like that. Uh, the dairy industry in particular. And cost of raw goods like cotton and crude oil have jumped tremendously due to factors like labor shortages and demands for better working conditions. People are waking up and saying, hey, <laughs> I have a choice here about where I work and what conditions I'm under. And I, I've even read that um, there are goods that have been produced that are stuck at ports. There aren't enough people working at the ports, or if, if there are, there aren't enough truckers to take the goods from the ports. Uh, so that's a, there's a shortage of truckers right now. And consumers are still demanding the same amount of goods, it seems, even more. You know, people are moving, people are building, um, even in a pandemic. It's pretty amazing. So how much control does President Biden have, have over all these factors? Not very much. However, true origins can be sum summarized like this, and I'm, I think some of you have heard this before, but it's so good to think about this as a description of our life, which is there's self-grasping ignorance in our mind that leads to distorted conceptions. Those distorted conceptions lead to afflictions. I don't know about you, but when afflictions are, are in my mind, I don't sit quietly. <laughs> My hands start moving, my mouth starts moving. So actions, we create actions, especially uh, formative actions, you know, that can propel a rebirth. Those leave uh, karmic seeds on our mind stream, which then later can ripen due to craving in particular. Craving causes those seeds to ripen and that brings about a rebirth. So just check for a moment, do you actually think of yourself as five aggregates, which are momentary processes bound together due to mutual conditionality. That was a nice phrase from the book. But that's the reality of our situation. Momentary processes bound together due to mutual conditionality. Heck no. We see ourselves as innately independent, having control over our body and mind. Yep. Check again. <laughs> So if someone asks you, who are you, or asks you to describe yourself, do you even think to mention, I'm a merely label, I'm merely labeled on the basis of five momentary aggregates controlled by karma and mental afflictions? <laughs> right. So this is what we're up against, right? A lot of conditioning that causes us to grasp at ourselves it's concrete, permanent, independent. But we can get a glimpse of this, you know, when we really uh, start thinking about the 12 links, not just once a week when our books are open on a Friday night, but really thinking about the 12 links and how they operate in our lives. And so these are coming up in our teachings here on Friday nights. Or when we meditate on the 32 aspects of the body and the changing nature of the mind and the four establishments of mindfulness, which we've done uh, on a, on a few occasions here to over winter retreat, you can really begin to get a little taste of what it means to have 32 aggregates that are constantly changing in the nature of dukkha, empty and selfless. Or meditations on the eight disillusions at the time of death. You know, we get a little glimpse of how we exist 
and how it is we go from life to life. Or meditations on emptiness can also open our mind to that. So on page 14, there's a really nice paragraph where His Holiness says, Our bodies and minds are transient by nature. There is no further cause or external condition for their changing and passing away other than their having arisen. That's it. The Buddha said, whatever has the nature of arising, all of it has the nature of ceasing. This is subtle impermanence, and to realize it clearly through direct experience requires great mindfulness and concentration. This realization is very valuable because when coupled with the understanding that our aggregates will never be something secure that we can take comfort in, it leads us to seek the origin of dukkha and to investigate if it can be eradicated, and if so, how. So in the context of the Four Truths, the Buddha identified craving as the principal example of the origin of dukkha to highlight its prominent role. So think about it. We crave for pleasure every time we experience a pleasant feeling. You know, that Thai, is, that thai food going on, meeting with your tongue, making contact with your tongue today. And we crave for existence, especially at the time of death. You know, we fear going out of existence, so we cling to our body. We cling to existence. And then true cessations are the exhaustion of true dukkha and true origin. And so from the prasangika point of view, once a bodhisattva has meditative equipoise on emptiness, become direct and non-conceptual, in that first moment of that wisdom directly realizing emptiness, it's called an uninterrupted pass. Do you remember that term? Uninterruptedly seeing truth as it is. That's the first true path in the mind. A path that directly and non-conceptually realizes emptiness. And that path, oops, I'm sorry, I jumped ahead. Yeah, it's a path. It's in the process of abandoning the acquired afflictive obscurations. So that's, that's in, it's in the process of bringing about a cessation. It's the first true path, and um, once it has abandoned the acquired afflictive obscuration, then it becomes what's called a liberated path. So the uninterrupted path, the liberated path are both true paths, and so we'll get to that in just a moment. But the reason I'm mentioning it is because it's the emptiness of that true path, uh, the liberated path. It's the emptiness of the liberated path that has abandoned some portion of the afflictive obscurations, the acquired ones, That is a true cessation. It's an emptiness. Cessation is an emptiness in the mind. And so that that may sound like gobbledygook to a few of you, but (laughs) over time we become more familiar with that. So the emptiness of that liberated mind, the mind which has abandoned some portion of the afflictive obscuration, is a true cessation. And that's brought about by the uninterrupted path that first moment of directly realizing emptiness and non-conceptually. And then true path um, is our tr- any, any virtuous path in the mind stream of an Arya being. There's a lot more that needs to be said about all four of those, isn't there? Okay, so that's, that's the nature of the four truths, just a summary of the nature of the four truths, and then how to engage with each truth. So... I have a little interactive. I thought you'd be tired tonight, and so <laughs> I'm going to get you to help me play along. 
Um, just look at the first part of this. So there at the top it says how to engage with, with each truth. So match the correct letter with each number. Minwal Tarpa gave me this, me this idea. You remember? When I was driving to the dentist with Venerable Children last week, she said, you know, I think we should do some pop quizzes. <laughs> uh, just do the top part. Follow instructions. Thank you. <laughs> okay. So what do we match true dukkha up with? How do we engage with true dukkha? They're to be fully known, aren't they? We have to understand true dukkha. How about true origins? How do we engage with those? To be abandoned, right. And true cessations of dukkha? They're to be actualized. And the true paths? Okay, good. (laughs) Thanks for playing along. (laughs) All right, that brings us to the third part, the result of each truth. The Buddha said true dukkha is to be understood, but there is no dukkha to be understood. True origins are to be abandoned, but there are no origins to be abandoned. True cessations are to be actualized, but there is no cessation to actualize. And true paths are to be cultivated, but there are no paths to cultivate. So there are two ways of understanding the Buddha's statement about the result of each truth. Do you remember? Venerable Tarpa? Good. Thank you. The basic idea is that in one way of looking at it, once you've completed it, you're finished with it, so you don't have anything else to do. And the other way, you know, to abandon or practice or whatever. The other way of looking at it is that, I think, is that these things are empty. And so there aren't really any inherently existent sufferings or any inherently existent um, origins, and et cetera. That's exactly right. Give her a gold star, please. (laughs) Great. That's exactly right. Okay, now... Oh, okay. Well, okay. Common to all Buddhist schools, we would say, was the first one that she described, which is, once we have understood dukkha, then there's no more dukkha to be understood. We've, We've understand on a conventional level. Once we've totally abandoned true origins of dukkha, there's no more causes of suffering to be overcome. Once we've perfectly actualized cessation, our liberation is complete. There's no more cessation to actualize. And once we have fully cultivated the path, there's nothing more to cultivate. And then the uncommon Madhyamaka approach, the Buddha is referring to the ultimate nature of the four truths. And as she mentioned then, well, on the conventional level, true dukkha is to be understood, but on the ultimate level, there is no true dukkha, right? There's no inherent dukkha. Because true dukkha and its origins lack inherent existence, true dukkha and its origins can be overcome by actualizing true cessations and cultivating true paths. And true dukkha and the other truths exist only by merely being designated by concept and term. But on the ultimate level, none of them can be found when searched for. So they lack inherent existence. Does that ring a bell? Yeah. Thank you, Venerable Tarpa. Okay, now, if you would, go to the second part of the exercise and match up the 16 attributes with the four truths. Wait, before you do that, let me ask you a question. Okay, how many of you can actually name all 16 attributes, you think? 
Okay, good. This will come in handy then. I mean, not good, but um, maybe this will help. <laughs> this will be worthwhile. <laughs> this will be a worthwhile exercise. Okay, so just take a minute to do that. Okay, about there. How many got all 16? That's right. <laughs> okay, so the four attributes of true dukkha, what are the letters? B, L, F, J, in, in that order. B, B is impermanent. L, let's try to do them in order if we can. Uh, L is dukkha or unsatisfactory nature. F is empty, and J must be selfless. Yeah? Selflessness, yeah. Self, selfless. Okay, so let's pause there before we go further. Yeah, let's, let's pause there before we go further and just talk about um, these uh, true, true dukkha and its uh, attributes. Okay, so four attributes of true dukkha counter four distortions, don't they? the distortion of holding the impermanent to be permanent, that the nature of dukkha to be pleasurable, the unattractive to be attractive, and what lacks a self to have a self. So principally, these, um, these attributes of true dukkha are attributes of the five aggregates, aren't they? But they also pertain to every conditioned phenomena. So each of these 16 attributes can be used in a syllogism to help us understand the four truths. And this is how Benroll has and His Holiness has structured the book. So what's the subject that true dukkha primarily pertains to? The five aggregates. Yep, the mental, the physical and mental aggregates. Okay. So, and these 16 attributes are going to be a predicate that go with that subject. So what's the what's the first predicate? Uh, that's the thesis, okay? So we've got the, the thesis. That's all right. The physical and mental aggregates are impermanent. So why is that the case? Why are the physical and mental aggregates impermanent? What would be a... Yeah, yeah. Because they undergo continuous momentary arising and disintegration. Or you could just say simply because they're momentary. Yeah. So on page 22, um, His Holiness says, Overwhelmed by ignorance, we apprehend transient things, such as our bodies, relationships, and possessions, as unchanging, stable, and enduring, and expect them to remain the same and always be there. We don't believe we're going to die, do we? <laughs> not really. Uh, at least not anytime soon. And therefore, we don't prepare for death. We believe we're the same person that we were yesterday. We expect our lives to be constant and predictable. And we're surprised by sudden changes or even gradual ones. I remember my dad saying to me shortly before he died, he said, how did I get to be 83? How did that happen? You know? um, so because everything changes in each moment, there's no stability. There's no real security to be found in samsara. And so meditating on the impermanence of true dukkha counters holding contaminated aggregates as permanent. That's primarily what it's aimed at doing, cutting grass meat at permanence. Okay, so what's the second thesis? We know the subject is the physical and mental aggregates. 
our dukkha are unsatisfactory by nature, why would that be the case? Exactly. That's right. The physical and mental aggregates are unsatisfactory by nature because they are under the control of contaminated karma and mental afflictions. So believing that what is unsatisfactory by nature, like our bodies, as well as contaminated phenomena, our body and mind enjoy, food, possessions, reputation, etc., uh, is actually pleasurable and happiness, we chase after those transitory things. And then expecting anything outside of ourselves to bring us true, lasting happiness is a setup for disappointment and dissatisfaction. And also, something I like to come back to again and again is thinking that happiness exists outside of myself. That has consequences, doesn't it? Do you know what those consequences are? I saw some head nodding over here. What's that? Suffering. Suffering. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay, that's one consequence. But it's more the consequence of thinking that way is what I was after. The more we had of any, any pleasurable external object, the happier we would be. How much of Cooney's Thai cuisine can you eat before you have a stomachache? <laughs> Maybe you experienced that today. Um, we should experience happiness every time we have that object. Is that true? And everyone also, everyone should enjoy and experience happiness with the same objects that we do. Those are consequences, aren't they? They, they don't match up. Like, not everyone likes the music we like. Not everybody likes the things we like to eat and drink. Not everybody likes to hang out with the people we like to hang out with. So if there were actual pleasure in people or things or experiences, everyone should experience them the same way. But they don't. So these are important. I've, I have found these consequences to be important to think about. You know, if happiness really existed outside of myself as it appears to, then these consequences wouldn't happen. So His Holiness says, what we call pleasure is actually a state where one discomfort has decreased and the newer discomfort is just beginning. <laughs> Doesn't seem that way. For example, when we've been sitting for a long time, like this morning, you think, oh, if I could only stand up. But how long can you stand before you want to sit down again? <laughs> About an hour and a half? That's a pretty good long time. Those of you who've been to Taiwan, you know what it's like to stand for a good long time. And chant. Okay. So meditating on the unsatisfactoriness of true dukkha counters the viewing them as pure and pleasurable. Yeah. Okay, so what's the third thesis? The aggregates, the physical and mental aggregates are empty. You might want to say because they're a dependent arising. <laughs> That's the usual syllogism, isn't it? But here, um, maybe you remember from Geshe Tabke's teachings. You know, we talked about at least from the, the 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 syllogism that would be common to even the lower schools would be the physical and mental aggregates are empty because they lack a permanent, unitary, independent cell. Good. All right. It's sticking. <laughs> so when we focus on the body 
you know, really examining the skin and the flesh and the bones and the organs and the guts and the excretions. <laughs> no one would find that the inside of the body attractive, right? So this, uh, this syllogism counters holding what is impure as pure. Yeah. But also, since the aggregates are impermanent and unsatisfactory by nature, our samsaric aggregates are unattractive and not worth clinging to. That's another point to hold on to. So that's one way of thinking about that. But also meditating on this aspect, this attribute, that uh, the emptiness of true dukkha counters the idea of holding the impure person or aggregates to be permanent, unitary, independent. So we can think of it in those two ways. Okay, and then the last syllogism. Yeah, the physical and mental aggregates are selfless because? They lack being a self-sufficient, substantial existent self. So when we say I or my body, we have the impression that there is a self there who is the owner and the controller of the body and the mind. So how do we usually identify one person as opposed to another? It's from seeing some aspect of them, right? Their skin, seeing their body, hearing their voice, thinking about them. So, um, but a self-sufficient, substantially existent person could be identified without cognizing any of their aggregates. Does that make sense? Think about those terms, self-sufficient, substantially existent. Self-sufficient means something that can stand alone, doesn't depend on anything else. And substantially existent, in contrast to imputedly existent, we know that if we're imputing something, there has to be a basis upon which you're imputing. But if something is substantially existent, it's, it can be called to mind without calling anything else to mind. So for the prasangikas, grasping at this is, of course, self of persons, isn't it? A self-sufficient, substantially existent person. But for all the other tenant schools, it's the subtle self of persons. Okay. And at the end of each one of these um, syllogisms and descriptions of the syllogisms, there are beautiful reflections to be done. So I, I really encourage you to go back to those and, and do the reflections. They're very powerful. Okay, let's move on to true origins of dukkha. So what do you have? What are the four letters under true dukkha? A, causes. Mm-hmm. M for origin, E for strong production, P for conditions. Very good. Okay. So what are true origins of dukkha? Afflictions and karma. Would we have to say contaminated karma? I think we would. Okay, so the principal examples of contaminated karma and afflictions in our syllogism is not just afflictions in general, but craving. Interesting. Craving and karma. So that's going to be our subject for the syllogism. And His Holiness on page 11 says, Afflictions in turn create karma that propels samsaric rebirth. In the context of the four truths, the Buddha identified craving as the principal example of the origin of dukkha 
to highlight its prominent role. So craving being a type of attachment. And, okay, so it depends on the translation, doesn't it? Because craving really is talking about the eight links, the eighth link. And so sometimes that's described as craving and grasping, eight and nine, craving and grasping, or sometimes it's clinging and craving. So it just depends on the translation. But here, when we're talking about craving, it's the eight links, eighth link. (laughs) And then karma is really talking about the second link, isn't it? Formative action. Formative action being all having the four branches complete so that that karmic uh, action leads a seed on the mind that can propel a rebirth. All right, so the first thesis is craving and karma are causes of dukkha. So why are craving and karma causes of dukkha? I have to confess, I don't really understand this syllogism. <laughs> I mean, it, when you look at, is the reason established? Is there pervasion? The, the reason is because they are the chief causes of dukkha. Craving and karma, so they are the chief causes of dukkha. The, the subject is established. But is there pervasion? There must be. <laughs> I just don't understand it. If something is the chief cause of dukkha, is it a cause of dukkha? It seems like if you understood it's the chief cause, you would already understand that it's the cause and the thesis would be moot. But I must be missing something, so I can't help you there. We'll have to ask Venerable. So again, think about uh, that formula. uh, Self-grasping ignorance leads to distorted conceptions, leads to afflictions, leads to actions or formative actions or karma, and leads to seeds on the mind stream. And when those seeds, when they meet with causes and conditions, appropriate causes and conditions, they ripen in terms of suffering, but particularly a rebirth. So what this is teaching us, what this is showing us, is that suffering has causes. So this counters some um, notion that our suffering doesn't have causes. Um, so at the time of the Buddha, there were materialists who, who thought this. They denied they denied causes of suffering, so they denied ethical responsibility and indulged in non-virtues. Sounds kind of familiar to what's happening today, doesn't it? So all day long we, clay, we crave pleasant feelings, which instigate that whole pattern, that whole uh, formula, instigating karmic actions, etc. Craving also causes different karmic seeds to ripen. So if you think about it, in the 12 links, um, at least one way to look at the 12 links, there are projecting causes and projected results. The projecting causes are ignorance, formative actions. It kind of skips the afflictions and the distorted conceptions, but goes to formative actions. And then there's consciousness. In other words, a seed on the consciousness. And then there's the, the potential that that seed has, which is name and form, six sources, uh, contact and feeling. But those, that's the potential of a seed sitting on the mind stream. doesn't mean that that seed is going to ripen. It could be interrupted, right, with purification um, or abandonments through true cessations. So what is it that ripe, gets that seed to ripen? It's craving that eight length, eight link. <laughs> that eight link. <laughs> So meditating on these two, craving and karma, as causes of our dukkha, counters the idea that suffering is causeless. So next time you have some suffering, 
maybe one of these will come to mind. Craving. Oh, this must have come about due to craving. And actions that I've created in the past. What a concept. Okay, what's the second thesis? Craving and karma. Craving and karma are origins of dukkha. So this one may not come to mind immediately either. Craving and karma are origins of dukkha because they repeatedly produce all of the diverse forms of dukkha. If you think about it, in the Lamrim Chimo, there's this section on um, the eight types of suffering. You remember underneath birth, there are five different causes of, um, or five different descriptions of birth and how each one of them is like birth itself is suffering just because birth is suffering, uh, physical suffering. And then birth is the origin of suffering. It's not 100% clear in my mind, but uh, it's linking up with any time we have, yeah, I can't remember exactly, but uh, anyway, just by having birth, we come in contact with pleasurable feelings, displeasurable feelings, neutral feelings, and we create actions based on that. Um, Well, we create afflictions based on that. Anyway, have a look at those five. (laughs) I should have looked at those five before I came in. Um, Afflictions and karma create all our mental and physical suffering and dissatisfaction of the past, present, and future. Hmm. Yeah, the reasons establish. Craving and karma uh, repeatedly produce all of the diverse forms of dukkha. Sometimes when we're new to Buddhism, we can be shocked when we start looking at all the types of suffering. Do you remember that feeling where all of a sudden the only thing that appeared to you was suffering? (laughs) But since all of these sufferings are conditioned phenomena, if we remove the causes for them, we can remove the suffering. That's the good news. When the conditions change or cease, the suffering they produce will also change. So understanding this um, second attribute of of true dukkha um, counters the idea that suffering comes from only one cause, like an external deity or a primal substance, which some Hindus espouse even to this day. Some people might blame God or some one external source for their suffering. Okay, how about the third thesis? Craving and karma are strong producers because they act forcefully to produce strong dukkha. So think about it. Afflictions and karma bring intense dukkha, don't they? Like one small action with all the four branches complete can propel us into a rebirth that would be have a suffering experience for eons, they say, Right? That's a big result for a small cause. And they forcefully keep us bound in cyclic existence. We are controlled by karma and afflictions. But we usually blame something outside of ourselves when things go wrong, (laughs) not our own craving and karma. So when we understand that afflictions and karma are the actual origin of every one of our problems, you know, that karma is definite, remember that one? karma is different, then we can begin to accept responsibility for our actions and our lives. 
and that empowers us then to change our actions. So this particular syllogism uh, counters the false belief that suffering or dukkha arises from discordant causes, yeah, incompatible causes. And that's something that we come to appreciate looking at um, the four characteristics of karma. You know, that there, uh, our experiences of happiness and suffering have causes and they're compatible causes. And then the fourth thesis, craving and karma are conditions. Okay, so not only causes, but they're conditions. Because they also act as the cooperative conditions that give rise to dukkha. So... Think about this. They're not only primary causes, but cooperative conditions. When craving arises in the mind, it can act like fertilizer, causing karmic seeds to ripen. That's a good reason to counter it. (laughs) So, hmm. think about it. That's what happens at the time of death, right? Craving forcefully arises and causes one of our karmic seeds to propel a rebirth. So understanding this syllogism counters the belief that dukkha is fixed or permanent and that thinking our unsatisfactory state can't be overcome even though we experience temporary times of happiness or short reprieves from our suffering. Okay, so there's a lot to think about and a lot to connect with what we already understand from the Lam Rim. You know, really putting together this 3D puzzle of the Lam Rim can be so helpful bringing in what we know about karma, um, yeah, what we know about refuge at different points, um, what we've, uh, different meditations that we've come across. Okay, so that's true suffer- true origin of suffering. What about true cessation? Yes. Uh-huh. Can you talk more about how karma is a condition? Well, okay, so like at the time of death, craving that arises in the mind, craving for not wanting to go out of existence, craving for a body, is not a substantial cause. It's not going to turn into the new rebirth, is it? But it's going to be a condition for a seed to ripen. The affliction. I understand how that's a condition. What I'm not clear on is how karma itself is a condition. Oh, karma. Karma is a condition. Oh, is karma a condition? Okay, let's think about this. Well, as I said earlier, when there's affliction in the mind, just like it's, it's saying that car, um, afflictions can be like a cooperative condition for seeds to ripen. But when we are afflicted, often those afflictions are motivating actions, right? It's not like you just have an affliction and that's the one. Like what happens when you crave? Maybe you just sit there and crave in your mind, but act- actually that often brings actions, right? So that action can also be a condition for, when we engage in actions, that can also be a condition for seeds ripening. Like, think about it, when we do nune, that can be a condition for karmic seeds to ripen in a quicker way than they normally would, or ripen in a less... um, Because I have karma kind of in the slot of cause, but that makes sense to me. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Okay, 
So if we go back to the sheet, what about true cessation of dukkha? What are the letters there? Or the words? Cessation, that's D. Peace, letter N. And C is in there. There's one missing. Yeah, magnificence, I. Thank you. Great. I'm looking forward to going back in winter retreat and really thinking about and reading through um, Gishi Tufke's teachings on this. Yeah, he, he spent a lot of time on true cessation. So what's the relationship between true cessation and nirvana? When we think about possibilities, how many possibilities between true cessation and nirvana? We have to understand what both of those mean, don't we, to actually come up with the possibilities. Okay, so true cessation, we talked about that earlier, right? It's the emptiness of a mind that's been induced by an uninterrupted path. You know, it's abandoned some portion of the afflictive obscurations, or at least the first moment. It's it, We could say in general it's a corresponding obscuration has been abandoned. Okay, so that's a true cessation. It's an emptiness, isn't it? And nirvana is the emptiness of a mind that has been totally cleansed of afflictive obscurations. If, if we're talking about like a nirvana of a Hinayana arhat, not non-abiding nirvana necessarily. Well, we could, we could even include this. We could change the definition a little bit. Like a non-abiding nirvana is the emptiness of a mind that has been totally cleansed of all obscurations. So is... Is nirvana a true cessation? It is. All right. So how many possibilities? Three. Yep. Okay. So what's an example of something that is a true... Okay, which way does the pervasion go? <laughs> Let me ask you. <laughs> which way does the pervasion go? Mm-hmm. Everything that is uh, cessation is contained within nirvana. It's the Nirvana is the larger group. So not... Not every cessation is nirvana. Right. Not every cessation is nirvana, so nirvana is included within the true cessations. Yeah, cessations is the larger group. So whatever is a nirvana is a necessarily a cessation, but whatever is a cessation is not necessarily a nirvana, for example. <laughs> Oh, don't go to that detail. You can keep it much simpler. Maybe like the first cessation in the on the path of seeing. It's not a nirvana, is it? It's a true cessation, but it's not a nirvana. So there are a lot of true cessations that are not nirvanas. Yeah. Okay. Just a little pop quiz. Okay. So what's the first thesis here with um, true cessations? Ah, so we have to find out, well, what's the subject? It's nirvana. So... Keep in mind that nirvana is typically used in the text to describe the hearer or the solitary realizer's nirvana when they have removed just the afflictive obscurations. They still have cognitive obscurations on their mind stream, but they have, they're, they've completely come out of, of um, samsara. 
But when we talk from a prasangika point of view and we're talking about bodhisattvas, then um, we're talking about the non-abiding nirvana, which is Buddhahood. Yeah. Okay, so here we're... Well, we can look at it in different ways. So the, the subject here is nirvana. So nirvana, what's the thesis? Nirvana cessation. is cessation of dukkha. Yeah. Okay, and some of these... Okay, so here's the reason. Nirvana is a cessation of dukkha because it is a state in which the origins of dukkha have been abandoned and thus ensure that dukkha will no longer arise. Okay, that, that subject is established, isn't it? And if you have that state, if you have a state in which the origins of dukkha have been abandoned and thus ensure that dukkha will no longer arise, that is the cessation of dukkha. Um, no. Uh, well, it's a loose description. Yeah, so the the definition that I um, found earlier from the Prasangika point of view, the true cessation is the emptiness of a mind induced by the uninterrupted path which induces it <laughs> in which a corresponding obscuration has been abandoned. So some of us might unconsciously think that afflictions are an inherent part of sentient beings. So, you know, like, he's just an angry person. She's, <laughs> she's just a jealous person. I'm just an angry person, <laughs> whatever the case may be. Um, and that might give us an excuse not to even try to remove our afflictions, right? We're not careful. And then we stay stuck in cyclic existence. But remember that there's a beautiful quote um, I've seen different sources for it, but the one I'm familiar with is a sublime continuum where Maitreya said, the nature of the mind is clear light and the afflictions are, or the stains are adventitious. Yeah. Meaning that the ultimate nature of the mind is emptiness and therefore afflictions can be countered when we apply an antidote or we remove their causes. So I did find um, a quote from Geshe, Yeshi Tapke. He said, um, the afflictions come from being deluded with respect to the self. There is an elimination of the grasping of I and grasping of my. If we are able to eliminate these, that leads us that leads us to uh, uh-huh. That's not clear. My notes are not clear. <laughs> See, this is why in winter retreat I need to go back to my notes and clean them up. Okay. I'll hold on, Geshe Tapke's <laughs> quote. But understanding this counters the belief that liberation from cyclic existence doesn't exist, that afflictions are an inherent aspect of sentient beings so that a final state of peace is impossible. So at the time of the Buddha, there may have been philosophical systems. There would have been philosophical systems that asserted this, and that's why you know, the Buddha would have been teaching these things to counter particular beliefs at that time. And probably we could find something corresponding in this day and age that would go along with that. Patricia, did you have a question? So I have a, a question about understanding nirvanas. So based on what you said, the central concept seems to be an absence of. So it's an absence of affliction, dukkha, which then reveals the clear mind. Or yeah, so it's if the the central concept is absence of is yes. there anything that is 
what's present then? A pure mind. A pure mind. Okay. A pure virtuous mind. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. So to get rid of afflictions, we have to counter them with positive states of mind. So in place of ignorance, we're developing wisdom to counter the, the ignorance. Right. And the same with all the other afflictions that we have. Um, you know, anger, we're countering that with patience and fortitude and mm-hmm. loving kindness, those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thanks. So to, to completely overcome our afflictive mind, we have to develop a really virtuous mind, okay. the consummate virtuous mind, we could say. But you're right, nirvana is an absence. It's, it's an emptiness. It's an emptiness of a mind that has abandoned all the, afflict, all the afflictive and, well, depending on which school you're talking about, all the obscurations. I just find that really interesting because in, say, other belief systems, experiencing, say, heaven or something like that, it's, it's about addition or you're in a different actual place. You get to go live with all your dead relatives. There you go. Something, I mean... <laughs> Whereas, whereas this, this, the beginning concept is, is an absence of something which reveals and then you're, you've got virtuous action. Right. Often it's said that um, this path is learning about who we are not. We have projected and fabricated and elaborated so much onto who we are and who other people are. And so a lot of our process is removing those elaborations, those superimpositions. And really coming to what's actually there. Um, Venerable Lamsell did a beautiful BBC a couple of weeks ago about uh, from a line that Venerable had said in a teaching about how our body and mind are not personal. That is big news. Because <laughs> most of us think it's very personal. But really when you start looking at it, that's right. This body was given to us by somebody else. I mean, personally, it was given to our us. Well, actually, we pro- it was propelled by karma and affliction as well as it wasn't like a choice. Um, but our body and mind, our body came from our parents, you know, the substantial cause from it anyway. And then everything we've eaten, all the farmers and all the rest. And then our mind, if you really look into your mind, it's quite repetitive, isn't it? Have you noticed that? When you sit for any length of time, you realize, wow, here's a rerun. <laughs> What's that thought again? Yeah, obsessive, compulsive, <laughs> dysfunctional thinking. Um, or, in, and you, you use the example that, you know, sometimes she hears the voice of her teacher in her mind. Well, that's come from her teacher, you know. So a lot of what, we, what goes in our mind are jingles. <laughs> You know, or things that other people have said, or things that we've thought before, or just habits, really, habits of the mind. It's quite um, humbling to realize that. The mind is not really that personal. It's just a lot of reruns. Yeah. So we're trying to eliminate that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Anything else? Because we're running out of time. Okay, so I think uh, since it's, yeah, we're, how late can we go? Can we keep going? Or Okay. Nobody's fallen asleep yet. <laughs> All right. The second um, attribute here is peace or pacification. So nirvana is peace. 
Why? Because it's a separation in which afflictions have been eliminated. So we're warned about mistaking one or more of the jhanas or the form realm of the form realm or meditative absorptions of the formless realm for liberation. It happens. People who don't have clear teachings can make that mistake. And as Venerable has said many times, that's one of the reasons she really appreciates her teachers who um, didn't necessarily encourage the students to do a lot of meditating on calm abiding or shine or shamatha and really encourage them to cultivate their bodhicitta instead because it's so easy to get attached to the bliss of those higher states of concentration. So being still fall from those states, the jhanas, the meditative absorptions, once the cause for them has been exhausted, people fall from them, beings fall from them into back into lower realms. So they are not a liberation. So those higher states of concentration are helpful. They do suppress the afflictions. Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> but they're temporary cessations. They're not not the full meal deal. So when we have eliminated these faults of afflictions and contaminated karma, a type of peace arises from having eliminated the process of rebirth and from having eliminated the afflictions, but uh, from eliminating the process of rebirth, which, which then includes all the different uh, sufferings of rebirth. So understanding this second attribute counters the belief that polluted states are constant, of concentrations are nirvana. That would have been important at the time of the Buddha. There were a lot of uh, teachers at that time teaching those high states of concentration. Okay, and then the one that was a little difficult, the third attribute. Nirvana is magnificence, or sometimes it's translated as sublimity, uh, or other words. Nirvana is magnificence because it is the superior source of benefit and bliss. What does that mean? <laughs> um, from, the, from His Holiness description, it says, because nirvana is completely non-deceptive and no other state of liberation supersedes it, no other state, nirvana is supreme and magnificent. Sounds enticing, doesn't it? You know, um, probably a lot of our lives we've chased after a kind of temporary happiness that has a kind of agitation to it if we really look closely. And the, the kind of happiness or what we're labeling happiness or bliss here doesn't have that agitation. It's a complete state of bliss. And, you know, probably we've all had little moments of that when we've been on retreat, when our minds are a little more still than normal. There's a kind of peace that is so different than any other kind of happiness that we normally run after, isn't it? So imagine magnifying that by, I don't know, 100 million or more. So um, meditating on this point counters the belief that there is a liberation superior to the cessation of suffering. Yeah, so just keep in mind that... Um, True Cessation and True Paths, Venerable has written three volumes, or His Holiness and Venerable have written three volumes, at least, on this topic. So there's so much more to uh, flesh out and think about in terms of these. We'll get to that. 
And then the last one is nirvana is definite emergence. Why? Because it's a total release. Yeah, total irreversible release from suffering. Imagine, (laughs) again, imagine that. Okay. Um, Geshe Tapke said, when one has eliminated the grasping of I and mine and the afflictions arising from those, it will not arise again. It is changeless, irreversible. There is no longer any cause for rebirth for the suffering it entails and the suffering or the suffering it entails because nirvana is the elimination of contaminated afflictions and karma. In other words, birth and all the suffering that comes with it. And meditation on that point counters the belief that nirvana can deteriorate. But looking at your faces, you're starting to deteriorate. (laughs) So maybe we'll save the truth of path for another time or maybe another person. (laughs) But we can just run through. Sure. I mean, what's left? (laughs) What are the letters left that, that go, that correspond? What are the attributes of true path? Path, G, path. Suitable, O. H, accomplishment, yeah. And K, way of deliverance. Bingo. (laughs) Okay. So I appreciate the opportunity to go back and think about these 16 attributes. And actually, probably all of us should be able to rattle them off for our teacher. and actually be able to have some understanding of each one of them. So we can aspire for that, and let's not just aspire for it. Let's, um, you know, winter retreat's coming up, and maybe we can spend some time in retreat really reflecting on these and meditating on them. So let's rejoice that we had some time tonight to review this beautiful book, Volume 3, Samsara Nirvana Buddha Nature, at least Chapter 1, and at least the section on the 16 attributes, and hopefully... um, a few things, a few more things will stick in the mind and uh, help you help us in our practice.